0: Works here we go episode fifty three welcome back welcome back to Killer babes cheers Kirby cheers virtually virtually through the camera through the phone through the computer that's all I know these days <laughs> there's a song I don't know if you
1: remember it but it was Kiss called Me through, through, the
0: through the Phone through the phone I knew exactly <laughs> what you were gonna say
1: and I just keep putting words in as it plays like ad libbing it so, so
0: we dumb it through the phone. we can record <laughs> this through the phone <laughs> because we're in a global pandemic <laughs> okay little doesn't have quite this, the same appeal yeah you got the right idea <laughs> yeah. okay well wish us luck everybody it is late in the night yeah,
1: we have tried numerous different recording sessions, and this is the one that stuck. So, this is the one you're getting.
0: <laughs> we're hoping this sounds a little bit better because I know a lot of the times when we record, like we're not together live, it sounds like shit, and we know that. So, we're trying new things, and hopefully, this sounds okay. And we know that, and we embrace that. <laughs> Listen, I know when it's shit, and you know what? That's what you got. That's, that's what that's, you that's see is what you get, people. Sometimes that's
1: what just what
0: it is. <laughs> like, what it is. Deal with it. Anyway, we'll see how this one goes. I think we'll jump right in because, listen, my brain can't take any any more of the day. So we're going to jump in. Mm-hmm. Episode 53. This one's kind of an exciting one. Because this story kind of has one foot in the true crime realm and one foot in the paranormal realm. So it's really a true crowd pleaser. No matter what you like, you're getting it today, folks. You're welcome. We're bringing you the first documented murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The death of Alan Bono was the first murder ever recorded in the town, and Arnie Johnson was put on trial for first degree manslaughter. The trial took place on October 28, 1981, just a few days before Halloween. This would also be the first time a possession defense was ever used in an American courtroom. The day this podcast airs, actually, on Tuesday the 16th, marks the 40th anniversary anniversary of Alan Bono's death. It was February 16th. Oh, that's also my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, Kayla. It happy was birthday. Fe- happy birthday. She doesn't listen, so she'll never hear it. <laughs> Okay, then I take that back. I'm yeah, not, recent, no, happy I'm not birthday. gonna text you. It was February 16th in 1981, a cold winter day, when 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson called into work sick with a sore throat at the Wright Tree Service. His girlfriend, Deborah, aka Debbie Glatzel, headed for the Brookfield boarding kennels where she worked grooming dogs. Johnson brought his little sisters with him, Wanda, Janice, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary to the can- kennel to visit Debbie. Wanda, Johnson's little sister, recalled that Debbie's customer that day was a black French poodle. Cute! Alan Bono, the 40-year-old manager of the kennels, was also there. He was short and stocky, and he liked to talk about the things he had done and the places he had seen. Don't we all know someone like that? He had only been in New England for about six months at this point. He had lived in Australia, where he had managed a plantation for about 17 months, and then he came to Connecticut from Florida, where his sister lived. His sister owned the kennels, and she had asked Bono to manage them. Bono was also Johnson's landlord at this time. That
1: day, lunch was on Bono, and he took Johnson Johnson's sister, Debbie and Mary, to the local bar, The Mug and Munch. It was a little place located in a small shopping center. Bono had some red wine and reportedly drank quite heavily at lunch. After lunchtime, they went back to the kennels. The rest of the afternoon was just a regular work day. And after work, Debbie, Mary, and Wanda went to grab some pizza, and when they returned, Bono, who was intoxicated at this point, asked them to come upstairs, and he turned the TV on and then began to punch his fist into the palm of his hand over and over again. He became agitated, and Debbie warned or urged Wanda and Mary to go outside. Bono grabbed Mary as she tried to leave, and Johnson was there in an instant, telling him to let go of Mary the air suddenly turned thick with tension as the men moved from the apartment to the outdoors. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. With Johnson there, Mary made a run for the car and Debbie attempted to calm things down by standing between the two men. Wanda tried to pull Johnson away, who was now growling like an animal, when a knife flashed in the air. When the stabbing was over, Johnson walked into the woods, staring straight ahead, and Alan Bono just stood there, punching his fist into his palm before he fell on his face and lay there on the ground. Bono was still alive, but died several hours later. The five-inch bladed knife that Johnson always carried lay next to him. Johnson stabbed Alan Bono to death. Bono was stabbed four to five times in the chest and one that extended from the stomach to the base of the heart on the lawn of Brookfield Kennels, which he managed in Brookfield, Connecticut, at about 6.30 p.m. on February 16th, 1981. About an hour later, Johnson was discovered two miles from the crime scene when police arrested him. Johnson was described as a small, blonde, fair-skinned man on a murder charge. Johnson was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail for $125,000. And from what the police could gather, the two men had allegedly been arguing over Johnson's girlfriend before it escalated to a stabbing. And at first, it looked like a routine argument gone horribly wrong. Police considered it an open-shut case. This was the first documented murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut.
0: Lorraine Warren called the Brookfield police the day after the murder to inform them that Arnie Johnson was possessed. And within days, the case became a media frenzy. Side note, if you're an astute listener to the Killer Babes podcast, you may remember the Warrens from a past episode. If you don't, then honestly, what are you doing? But also, we'll touch upon the Warrens a little bit later, so don't worry. It came out that clergy members, Johnson's mother and his girlfriend, Debbie Glatzel, but mostly famed paranormal investigators, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who all all claimed Johnson had been possessed at the time of the killing. Although ordinarily the police would disregard such unusual claims, the media and Bridgeport Diocese involvement changed things up a little bit. According to the Hartford Courant, the largest daily newspaper in the state of Connecticut, the Warrens told police, quote, Brookfield priests called in the diocese after they heard the 11 year old story. He had recently entered a new townhouse, sat on a waterbed, and was suddenly confronted by an elderly man with hooves, who, whose image was soon joined by men in grotesque costumes, end quote. Shortly after Bono was killed, the diocese stopped commenting, commenting on the boy's case, but a spokesperson acknowledged that a priest had been assigned to investigate the boy. The spokesman said it was the first time the diocese had assigned an investigator to look into, quote-unquote, diabolical possession. Now, from encyclopedia.com, the most premier source you could ever have, Diabolical possession in the Bible is strictly defined as the state of a person whose body has fallen under the control of the devil or demon. The Old Testament was familiar with demons, but it would seem that it describes no true cases of possession. However, in the New Testament, many cases of possession are described. The possessed person may display superhuman strength or knowledge. The New Testament often attributed diabolical possession to some purely natural afflictions such as epilepsy, blindness, and dumbness. (laughs) Part of the reason for these ideas was the lack of knowledge for scientific diagnosis of nervous and mental disorders. This does not provide a basis for a rationalistic denial of the possibility or fact of possession. Thus, the presence of death and other human illnesses were a sign of Satan. The Glatzel family recapped the following of their son, David Glatzel, who allegedly played host to the demon that forced Johnson to kill Bono. Eleven-year-old David Michael was the youngest of three Glatzel boys, with brothers Carl Jr., 16, and Alan, 13. It all started when David was helping his only sister, Deborah, 25 years old, and her boyfriend, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, 19 years old, move into their rental home in Newtown, Connecticut. They were planning to move in along with Johnson's mother, Mary, and Johnson's three younger sisters, Janice, Wanda, and Mary. The house in the country was yellow with olive green shutters set back in the woods on Old Holliesville Road. It seemed perfect. So on July 2nd, everyone pitched in to help clean up and prepare the place. It was during this normal summer day that the first of a series of not normal incidents would begin to take place that would change their lives forever. There was one room in this new house
1: that still had furniture in it, the master bedroom. It contained a very large, heavy canopied waterbed in the center of the room, making it difficult to clean. And Katie wrote, side note, ew, waterbeds are gross.
0: (laughs) I would like to comment on that because I do feel that way. I loved them. Ew, first of all, you didn't have one, did you? Yeah, my mom had
1: one. Your mom had a waterbed? Yeah, and I remember, like, wanting to jump on it all the time because it was so squishy, and it you were on
0: water. Did she let you jump on it? Because I feel like that was uh, a no-no. No, never. I got yelled at. <laughs> so, well, then what? Oh, my God. I can't. I I think that is the, the weirdest thing. Like, can you imagine, like, never mind, my mom listens to this podcast, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, like, a water bed? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I said, yes, I can imagine. (laughs) I mean, hello, goodbye. No, not if you have a waterbed. That's so creepy to me. Could you actually sleep a whole night on a waterbed? Yeah. (gasps) No, that would wake me up.
1: Well, you're a very, very light sleeper. I'm light in the sense, like, when I'm starting to go to sleep, I'm very light. But once I'm out, I am out until morning. Do you think you would
0: dream about, like, being on a ship all this time? no I didn't have water dreams at all I don't I don't know each to his own I do remember when we had to get
1: rid of it it was a bitch because <laughs> sure. was so I don't even remember how we drained it out but I think we took something and attached it and like put it out the window and just tried <laughs> to like drain it that way I don't even remember but it was really hard it was very hard So anyway, let us know if you're a waterbed or not waterbed person.
0: (laughs) And if you are, you're dead to me. (laughs) (laughs) Except Except for Kirby's mom. Yeah, right.
1: (laughs) So the previous tenant did say they would dismantle it. They just said, you know, leave it there until we find someone who will do something with it. Carl and Alan had fun jumping on the bed, but David refused to join in as he experienced motion sickness quite easily. Suddenly, the door slammed of its own accord, locking the boys inside, and Carl was finally able to pry the door open. They put the incident behind them and continued to help their sister and Johnson clean, but the mystery had just begun. David said an old man, described as a see-through wearing, dirty plaid shirt with patchy holes, appeared, pointed at him, and told him, beware, and then pushed him. The man vanished and David ran out in tears and refused to return for the remainder of the day. And initially, his parents, Judy and Carl Glatzel Sr., just thought he was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning, but David told them the old man wanted to harm the family if they moved into the rental home. The next day, David told his mother and sister about the man, but they dismissed it, chalking it up to the overactive imagination of a young boy. He then told his brother Alan about these sightings which ended up scaring both of the boys. David then told Johnson, who was quite fond of his girlfriend's youngest brother, and he believed the young boy because they found bloody scratch marks on the basement door at the rental home where George, the family dog, had spent the previous night. The dog was so shaken and exhausted, and his paws were bloodied. So this prompted Debbie to speak to Karen, the woman who was the previous tenant who left her waterbed there, who was also in the process of trying to find out how to get rid of it for them. Debbie asked if there was anything out of the ordinary and to her surprise, Karen said, yes. She said she saw an apparition of an old man, alarmingly the exact same description that David had described. Karen said it was pretty much the reason that she was moving, but, you know, partly there may have been other reasons. And she heard her name whispered at night, long and ghostly, Karen.
0: Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I
1: got One night. The old man appeared and slid into her bed and attempted to fondle her with icy hands. That's a so, big no-no. Yeah, she was moving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm out.
1: Over the next few days at the Glassells' residence, not far from the Brookfield Center, David started having visions, not just during nighttime, but daytime too, of the same old man with big black eyes, and now there was horns that resembled Satan a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. The family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, but no one but David ever saw the old man. David started having night terrors and exhibiting strange behavior, and when he awoke in the morning, he had unexplained scratches and bruises. The family had no idea what to do, so they called upon the services of Father James Dennis, the pastor at St. Joseph's Church in the Brookfield Center, who attempted to bless the house.
0: After witnessing a number of really weird, ominous occurrences, the family was terrified and had no idea what to do at this point. So with the help of Father Dennis, they decided to enlist the aid of self-described demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Remember them from the investigation with the Amityville Horror Hunting case? And we covered their involvement in episode 24, The Conjuring House. Heard of them? Ever heard of them? Anyway. On the hot and humid evening of July 9th, 1980, the Warrens rushed to the Glatzel home. As Lorraine recalls, quote, We went to the house this hot night, I can remember, like the steam and moisture coming off the ground. It was a weird night when we arrived there, end quote. Ed recalls the incident. When I started up the front steps, I tripped. I'm not a particularly clumsy man, but I did a great big pratfall. I hadn't stubbed my toe against a step, I hadn't loosened my grip on the banister, but there I was tripping. It was as if an invisible hand had grabbed my ankle. I went right down, and so it happened that the doctor found this funny. We were close friends, and so I knew he was laughing out of affection and not malice. But when I explained to him that I really hadn't tripped, he went, sure, sure, and made a joke about how clumsy I was. Then he came right behind me, and he stumbled too, end quote. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialized next to David, an indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterwards.
1: And when we got in the house, we were sitting there at the table talking. Now you would watch David and he would be doodling you know, drawing or something like that. And he'd be concentrating on what he was doing. And then he would look up, and it was no longer a little 11-year-old boy.
0: Now, this 11-year-old boy would become extremely strong. I've seen nights when it would take four and five men to hold him down. He would be ranting and raving, raving and uh, yelling. Uh, There was times when he would attack his mother. Now, this boy loved his mother. He loved his father. And uh, at one time, he actually broke the mother's nose, I believe. By now, David began showing signs that he was no longer himself, gaining 60 pounds, growling, hissing, speaking in otherworldly voices, and reciting passages from the Bible or Milton's Paradise Lost. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, the Glatzel family agreed to three lesser exorcisms for David. And so at their wit's end, in an effort to cure David, the Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the church to have a formal exorcism performed on David. Lorraine Warren said that David levitated during these exorcisms, ceased breathing for a time, and demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition, specifically in relation to the crime Johnson would later commit. The demon and David proclaimed that, quote, Arnie will kill with a knife, end quote. And apparently that statement was caught on tape.
1: Obviously, Johnson and Debbie had totally abandoned the thought of moving to their new rental home, completely convinced it was haunted and the source of all their trouble. Johnson's mother, who was also named Mary, and his three younger sisters, who had moved into the rental rental home in Newtown, despite Johnson and Debbie's plea to leave it. In October 1980, the Warrens had contacted the Brookfield Police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon fled the child's body and took up residence within Johnson, who was present for the exorcisms. According to eyewitness testimony, Johnson coerced one of the demons within David to possess him while participating in David's exorcisms. According to 2006 Discovery Channel's A Haunting Episode, where demons dwell, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon. In both the dramatized TV version and his personal account, Johnson recollects that this was his final encounter with the demon, while completely lucid, and after that encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he then became possessed. David began to show signs of improvement, especially after being placed into counseling, and he moved to a private school for disturbed children. Still rattled, the Glaxo family concluded that the property was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment, the kennel owned by Alan Bono. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behaviors that were strikingly similar to David's, and Debbie feared he had become possessed. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into trance-like states where he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. Johnson began to display violent behavior as well. At one point, he reportedly put his fist through a chest of drawers, growling like an animal, and then couldn't remember the incident. It would be several months later that Johnson would kill his landlord during a heated argument.
0: The death of Alan Bono was the first murder ever recorded in the town of Brookfield, Connecticut, and Arnie Johnson was put on trial for first-degree manslaughter. The trial took place in Connecticut's Superior Court at 146 White Street in Danbury, Connecticut, beginning on October 28, 1981, just a few days before Halloween. Johnson's lawyer, Martin Manella entered a defense of not guilty by reason of demon possession. The devil made him do it! The media that surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, had the case coined the Demon Murder Trial. Manella received calls from all over the world, and he traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases though neither of those went to trial. He planned to fly an exorcism specialist from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Gletzel's exorcism if they did not cooperate with the defense. Not everyone believed the demon plausibility. Not only was this the first documented murder case in Connecticut, a documented murder case in not connecticut in the town of brookfield connecticut i'm assuming not only was this the first documented murder case in brookfield connecticut this would be the first time a possession defense was ever used in an american courtroom historic manila set out to prove that not only did demons exist but they physically manipulated his client into committing murder with the media blitz that this case now turned up Sometimes it seems like the death of Alan Bono gets lost. The presiding judge, Robert Callahan, would later become chief justice of the state Supreme Court, rejected his defense from the start. Callahan refused to hear Manella's planned arguments about the devil's work saying, quote, I'm not going to allow the defense of demon possession, period, end quote. He argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to lack of evidence and that it would be, quote, irrelevant and unscientific to allow related testimony. Manila tried to have Callahan disqualified, but Callahan didn't budge. Manella attempted to put four priests on the stand, but Callahan wouldn't allow that. Ed Warren was a character witness during the trial who took the stand for only a few minutes, saying Johnson was, quote, quiet and considerate, and that it was very hard to believe he could have murdered anyone, end quote, before Warren had to step down. And so Manila had to fall back on the implication that Johnson had acted in self-defense rather than possession.
1: Johnson testified on his own behalf, saying Bono was drunk and provoked the argument. He said he didn't remember what happened after Bono ran at him with a five-inch knife Johnson used for his job as a tree surgeon until he was taken in by police. Total side note here, because we always do a little side note. We looked up what a tree surgeon was. Turns out it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Trees get sick too, you know, and sometimes they just need a little TLC. According to growingearth.com, when you talk about tree surgeons, you're actually talking about horticultural maintenance professionals known as arborists. These tree service professionals have gone through years of education and on the job training to be able to diagnose heal, and maintain trees. Reasons why a tree might need attention from a tree surgeon include the following. Pest infestations, fungal infections, bacterial infections, natural and human caused damage, chemical and weather burns, and soil problems. In most cases, a tree surgeon is called to a property when trees need to be felled, shrubs or branches need to be pruned, logs need to be split, and fallen trees need to be moved. And of course, new trees planted in their place. Anyways, back to the case. Prosecutor Walter D. Flanagan and police struck a simple explanation. Bono had made a remark about Johnson's girlfriend, Debbie, and the two men got into a heated argument that ended with Johnson stabbing Bono. Many reporters left by the third day of the trial since the devil was now out of the question. And prosecutors said another type of demon may have played a large role in this case alcohol the state argued that two men had been drinking quite heavily before the scuffle a waitress from the mug and munch cafe testified that she had served three crafts of red wine to the two men who were with deborah glatzel and the other family members on the afternoon stabbing which if you're wondering a carafe is a pitcher that fancy restaurants serve water or alcohol in like the ones where you pop the top off and pour or the ones that are just open mouthed and yeah or they're
0: like you know those like wine decanters that's yes. technically a carafe
1: I also really appreciate when they bring, you know, larger bottles of water than just that one cup. Yeah, cuz you a fish. Yes. The ambulance driver who arrived at the scene of the crime testified that Glassell and her father were standing near the body. Glassel, who appeared distraught, said repeatedly, quote, oh, daddy, he didn't mean to do it. You know how he gets when he's been drinking, end quote. The state never established a motive, but Prosecutor Flanagan said Johnson, quote, did what he wanted to do, end quote, when he stabbed Bono. Flanagan said the number and depth of the wounds show Johnson's intent to kill. The jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the murder. The jury deliberated for 17 hours over three days, and the jury's conclusion stated that they didn't think Johnson acted with intent to kill Bono, only to injure him. One of the jury's last requests for a transcript of testimony was that of a policeman who had said Johnson told him, quote, I think I hurt
0: someone, end quote. On November 24th, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted and ruled guilty of first-degree manslaughter not murder, for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. On December 18, 1981, Johnson received the maximum sentence of 10 to 20 years. He claimed that while in jail, he sometimes received visitations from the beast and he was stabbed by the entity on the anniversary, anniversary of Alan Bono's death. On January 30th, 1985, a year before he was released from prison, Johnson married Debbie Glatzel after the five years of serving his time johnson was released after being a model prisoner he went to live with his wife and they would go on to have two sons and two grandsons deborah johnson debbie johnson is a certified nurse's assistant and her husband continued working as a tree surgeon debbie johnson said she is still interested in the supernatural and remains friends with lorraine warren she said in an article in the hartford current quote you never take that step you never challenge the devil. Arnie started showing the same signs my brother did when he was under possession. But now we live a normal life, end quote. Martin Manella continues to stand by Johnson's case to this day. He said in a phone interview with the Hartford Current that he heard the tapes of David Glatzel speaking the names of 42 demons in Latin. And the Brookfield police chief was going to testify that he saw the child levitate. Manella said, quote, if you believe in God, you've got to believe in the devil. And what I saw in Johnson as a young guy has profoundly affected me for the rest of my life. There's a lot of crazy people out there that have contacted me to represent them with the same idea. The devil made me do it. But our case was based on fact, not fiction. end quote. While the trial was in full swing, the gletzels took an emergency trip to Quebec, Canada, where the Warrens had arranged for a gifted exorcist, Father Deschamps, to perform a classical form of exorcism called the laying on of the hands. On November 7, 1982, David was allegedly completely exorcised in less than 30 minutes by Father Deschamps. The demon that had raised such havoc since July of 1980 identified itself before departing through Father McEwen, McEwen, who acted as a medium. The demon was an arch devil known as Beelzebub, Beelzebub, that one, and before completely leaving caused havoc in the small church by breaking windows and opening and slamming the doors. David was supposedly freed from his demons, or I guess demon, but the family would never be able to completely free themselves from the disruption that personally affected all of their lives. Agents were swarming,
1: promising lectures, a book, and even a movie detailing the gruesome cases. It was in the works. The trials had attracted media attention around the world, and events to this day have numerous depictions in literature and television. In 1983, Gerald Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Brittle says he wrote the book because, quote, the family wanted the story told. He claims that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family and that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. According to Lorraine, the profits from the book were shared with the family, but some resources say that only about $2,000 was paid to the family. When the book went up for republication in 2006, David Glassel and his brother Carl Glassel Jr. tried suing the author and book publishers for, for violating their right to privacy, libel, and quote, intentional affliction of emotional distress. The paperback original that was documented by Gerald Brittle and Ed and Lorraine Warren in the Devil in Connecticut is now a collector's item, which can be found on eBay and other online auction sites with prices fetching as much as over a hundred thousands of hundreds of thousands of hundreds of dollars. Lots of money. Carl claimed the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. Apparently, the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. The publicity from the Johnson case related to the Glassels forced Carl to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. Carl Glassell said, quote, it was living hell when we were kids. It was just a nightmare. I am not going through that again. Neither is my brother, end quote. In 1983, Dick Clark Productions released the movie, The Devil Murder Case, AKA the Rhode Island Murders. And in 2007, Carl Glassell began writing a book, Alone Through the Valley, about his version of the events. Glassell's father, Carl Glassell Jr. denies telling the author Brittle that his son was possessed johnson and debbie now married wholeheartedly support the warren's account of demonic possession and have stated that the glassels in question are simply suing for monetary purposes while the tell-all book doesn't seem to be available for purchase there is quite a long excerpt that's still available on old geo site which is www.geocities.com devilbustedinct the site itself is really interesting and has a lot of links, and there's also a contact email listed for hate mail. In 2006, Discovery Channel's A Haunting episode, Where Devils Dwell, which we already mentioned, features an interview with Arnie Johnson and Debbie Glatzel, who provided firsthand accounts where they claimed to be eyewitnesses to demonic possession, and both believed the Warren's recollection of events.
0: As the publicity died down over the next several years, the Glatzel family tried to return to their everyday lives. Besides the residents of Connecticut and those really interested in the paranormal, only a handful of people had ever heard of the Brookfield Demon Murders, or the Devil Made Me Do It case. But that will soon change. A film adaptation is currently in production, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, a.k.a. The Conjuring Theory. It was originally scheduled for release in the U.S. in September 11th, 2020, actually, but obviously due to COVID-19, it was pushed back a little bit, so its release date is now June 4th of this year, 2021. Today, the location of the original crime, 519 Federal Road in Brookfield, Connecticut, is still a kennel, although it has a different name now and some different owners. So what we know is there was a terrible murder that took place. But what we don't know is the motive, really. Or the big question is how much of the story do you believe? Was there an exorcism or was it more of an exploitation? Really only Johnson and the Lutzel family will really know what happened that day. Or in the remaining days with all of the exorcisms. I mean, I personally take it with a very big grain of salt, but you know what? We'll watch the trilogy of The Conjuring and see what it has to say. Listen, y'all know my take on demons and although, yeah, I mean, I feel like, in my opinion, the devil can't take over your body because I don't believe in the devil. However, I'm sure people had mental breakdowns and they probably look a lot like possessions and that's all I'm saying. Very interesting. No one asked for my opinion, but you know what? I'm giving it. Okay. What do you think, Kirby? Do you think there was a possession? Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> in,
1: I, just, see you. I just said that because you're on the opposite end. <laughs> um, fucking- I still don't know enough of the case. I think I'd like to see the 100 hours of footage that is out
0: there. Um, but why? What's the point? What's it going to do?
1: I don't know. Maybe, maybe, I don't know.
0: You think he should be found innocent and not go to jail?
1: No, 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 no. I definitely think that there was a murder that took place and (laughs) (laughs) someone has to be responsible for it. And I I don't think you can just get away easily saying that the devil made me do it. Although I do differ. I do believe that, you know, there is other entities out there, whether they're good or bad. And um, I just think it would be really risky if the judge had said, "Yeah, let's let the oh devil go in," be yeah. because literally anybody could have just used that excuse and then be scot free. So I, I and don't. No one
0: could say you. what it looks like if somebody possesses you, so you could just if there's no set right. of rules to be like this is what possession is, then you could.
1: There's no like- way, yeah. Unless we have an accurate, you know, like possession testing device out there, which we don't. But if we did, in the perfect world then, I don't know, I, it's just too hard. I think there's definitely no way that this would ever stand up in court.
0: No, in fact, it almost scares me that somebody even tried to do that. Like, I... <laughs> It doesn't
1: I'm... with me. I feel like they've tried to try everything. That's true. Literally everything. I
0: guess that's a good lawyer,
1: but... Like the woman who just gorilla-glued her hair. I, she said she's not suing, but there was... Wait, on TikTok, one. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. I saw like, that. Imagine if she sued because what, what she was, she was the one who put gorilla glue on her hair. I I don't know. I just don't think it's the same with the coffee cups that now say "caution hot." You know, it's someone sued because the top spilled or something and they got burnt by coffee that was too uh, hot
0: wasn't that someone going through a mcdonald's drive through yeah it was something
1: oh. like that and now like packaging has to say warning hot you might burn yourself basically so i but I don't you know.
0: ordered coffee like i is- know
1: i know so it doesn't really honestly surprise me that someone tried to pull that in court because they've tried everything which also if there is millions to be had then i can see why you would try any avenue but still
0: yeah, I mean, I definitely get like the publicity fact of it all, but come on, yeah, come know. on, come on, people, get it together. I mean, you know what? Maybe the the videos would be interesting. Who knows? And you know what? If you're into this kind of thing, then maybe you think there's a little more weight behind it than me personally. Who? I mean, I'm I'm a very much a believer in Occam's Razor. Oh, okay. Is that what it is? When it's like, what's the most obvious explanation? Like, if you hear horse hooves, don't assume it's a zebra. Like, assume it's a horse. Uh-huh. So, in this case, you know what? <laughs> Two guys were fighting over either a or a girl, and he stabbed him. So, you're telling me it's not a zebra? I'm telling you it's a horse, not a zebra. It's always yeah. a horse. It's never a zebra. Got it. Except when it's not, but got it. That's true, (laughs) except when it's a zebra. (laughs) And that's my two cents on the demon murder.
1: I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there will have divided comments or thoughts or beliefs. So let us know what you think. We're open to all. Thanks for those that follow us on all avenues, whether it be Instagram, Facebook, which is Killer Base Podcast, or Twitter, Killer Base Pod. And a couple people blowing up the emails. podcast at gmail.com. Do Keep you up- have
0: a water bed? anyone?
1: <laughs> Please don't tell me, actually. I don't think I want this kind of email. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait a sec. Getting too personal.
1: But we looked at the calendar the other day. And we have some great things coming up on the horizon. And we also only have four, five, six, seven, seven episodes left. So... I need to math. Season three is coming in hot. So basically, if you have any recommendations, get them in now or you're missing season three.
0: And get maybe them in right now or you're out for the count. Yeah, until next yeah, season, because yeah. we already got some stuff lined up. And guys, woo-hoo! I'm so excited. I can hardly handle it.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, with that, that is the end of this episode. Let us know what you think. Check us out and peace out. See you next week. And don't glue your head with Gorilla Glue. Don't do it.
0: All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.